So if you have your Bibles, I'll go ahead and encourage you to turn to Revelation chapter 12. I mean, Revelation 12 today, uh, we begin this Christmas season, we were in the book of Luke, and then last week we are in 1 John, which is one of those passages you might not normally think would be in Christmas, and then today we're in Revelation. Next week we'll go back on Christmas Day to a little more well-known passage. We'll be looking at the wise men who came and visited Jesus, Um, but today we're in Revelation 12. Normally when we think of Christmas, and especially when you drive around, you see things like manger scenes. You think of wise men, sheep, donkeys, shepherds, angels, maybe a bright star, things like that. And all of those are true, and all of those are wonderful, um, but they are also all things that are visible with the eye. But if we were to pull back the curtain, and we were to look um, at the spiritual, we would see at Christmas a great war being fought. So yes, Christmas is a time of great joy, but it's also, there's a great war. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. In Revelation, we're going to see that there's a giant seven-headed dragon with ten horns, and it is lurking over a pregnant woman who is about to give birth, and it's ready to kill the child. That's Christmas also. And we can't fail to, to think of that. Now, we don't think of that much, and it would be a little strange if we decorated our houses that way. If you think about it, you, you, on Christmas Eve, perhaps you go, you drive around, and you, you look at Christmas lights, and you look at the house with all the pretty manger scenes, and you're like, oh, that's, that's sweet. Go to the one, like Donna's house will have all the, the Mickey Mouse and, and Disney, and you'll be like, oh, that's sweet. And then you go to the next house where there's a dragon with seven heads trying to kill a baby with a pregnant woman. That one might just scar the children a little bit. In fact, uh, um, Andrew with the students, they, they decorated my office this last week and, and wrapped it, basically. It was a giant present. It was, it was fun. It was weird because everything was, literally everything was wrapped. Um, and they gave me a Christmas card of Revelation 12. <laughs> and it was very disturbing and extremely, extremely amazing. Uh, and so, actually, it's like my favorite card ever, uh, but it was... I just don't feel like I could share it here today, but if you want to come at my office later, I'll show it to you. Uh, but while we don't decorate our houses that way, we can't fail to remember there's a great spiritual war taking place. And so today, what we're going to do in Revelation 12, we're going to, we're going to pull back the curtain, and we're going to look at this war that surrounds the Christmas season. Now, when we come to Revelation, we, we need to understand just a couple of rules. We're entering into what is called apocalyptic literature, something that we don't read a whole lot of today, but apocalyptic literature, literature is full of imagery that's often used to depict spiritual realities, um, usually focusing on leading up towards the return of Jesus. So when we read this type of literature, we need to understand and we need to read it appropriately. Uh, so for instance, next week we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to read that the wise men are going to go and visit Jesus. And so the way we understand that is that the 
wise men went to go visit Jesus. That would be the literal understanding of that. However, when we come into apocalyptic literature, it's heavily symbolic language. And so the symbols are pointing us to a much greater reality. And so when we read, like today, that a giant dragon is lurking over a pregnant woman giving birth, we're not to think there's an actual dragon somewhere over a pregnant woman giving birth, but that it's pointing us to a spiritual reality. And so when we come into apocalyptic literature, um, we read the text to understand it symbolically first. And oftentimes we'll understand that through Old Testament or through the, first te- or through the New Testament uh, context. And so uh, also I know as we come into Revelation, I know that's an exciting book. I know we all want to know about Revelation, and on January of 2018, sorry, it's not this year, but it's next year, we're going to go through all of Revelation. Uh, This next year, we're going to be going through Galatians, and we're going to be spending a great deal of time looking at the Reformation, because uh, starting in 2017, we're celebrating 500 years that Martin Luther put um, the, uh, his 95 thesis on the Wittenberg door, which began a reformation of bringing the church really back to the word of God. And so that's what we're going to focus heavily on this next year, 2018. We will begin with Revelation. And so I just say that there's going to be things that you're going to want to know. We're not able to handle every part of the passage and answer every question. So sorry. Um, But if you don't mind, we're going to read Revelation 12, so I'm going to ask you to stand, because here we do stand when we read the Word of God, and we do that because we believe God's Word comes from the very breath of God, it comes with His authority, it's inerrant and infallible, and so we stand in honor and respect of our Heavenly Father. Revelation 12, verses 1 through 6, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your book. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you for revelation, that you have given it to us that we would understand spiritual realities and what um, and how your son Jesus is returning. Father, I pray that as we look at your word today that you would increase our understanding, that by your spirit you would give us conviction, that by your spirit we would understand the truth of the realities that we read about and that we would know based upon them how we're to live today father we thank you for the hope that is given to us in this book that we know your son reigns lord we thank you for that truth we know that you rule right now and father give us eyes to see give us ears to hear in your wonderful name jesus amen you all may be seated um 
quick context. John is writing in the last part of the first century around 90 AD. He's writing to to seven churches, which are listed in chapters 2 and 3. And they are enduring persecution. And so John writes this letter that they would be encouraged so that they would persevere in their faith and not lose heart. Now, our passage today is broken up into four sections, and we're going to go through it in four sections. And really, there are four events. We have a pregnant woman, we have a bloodthirsty dragon, we have a child who is born, and a woman who flees to the wilderness. And so we're just going to walk through it in that order. So number one, the pregnant woman. And with every one of these, we're going to ask who the person is, who's being represented. So who is she? Well, the woman is the covenant people of God. In fact, her description is very similar to what we read back in Genesis 37. In Genesis 37, 9, Joseph explains one of his dreams to his brothers. So so real quick, Joseph is one of the 11 sons of Jacob. Eventually, there'll be a 12th son named Benjamin. And this is where we get the 12 tribes of Israel. So um, when we have Jacob, who represents Israel, his sons are the, are the people of God. Um, Joseph has a dream one day, and he shares it, and this is his dream. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And, of course, this is going through where he will then be going into Exodus. But the imagery that, or to Egypt, the imagery that we have here of a moon, of a sun, and stars representing the people of God, and now here being used as we see a moon, a star, or moon, a sun, and the stars representing the people of God. And here in in Genesis, the sun would be Jacob, the moon would be the mom, and the 11 stars would be the brothers. Um, Our interpretation, knowing that this is the woman, is further verified. When you go through the Old Testament, Israel is regularly referred to as a woman, as an unfaithful woman, a faithful woman, um, a woman who is pregnant and in labor. Um, So regularly as we go through um, the book, we are seeing uh, that Israel is depicted as a woman. In fact, this picture is also being contrasted what we'll see in, I believe, Revelation 17, where we're given a picture of the harlot. So we have there the unfaithful, or um, not the unfaithful, the, the non-covenantal people of God, those who do not believe in him, contrasted with the people of God, who is the woman giving birth. Um, so why is she in pain? Well, of course, the answer would be, well, she's pregnant, and pregnancy is hard. But again, we're to understand things symbolically. So if the woman represents the people of God, what is this pain that the people of God are experiencing? Well, surely it is the pain of suffering and persecution that they have been experiencing uh, since about 500 B.C. BC. They were taken captive by Babylon. They were taken captive by the Persians. They were taken captive by Greece. They were taken captive by the Romans. Regularly, they were being ruled by other nations. Regularly, they were being persecuted. Regularly, their rights are being taken away from them. And at this point in time, emperor worship is is what is practiced all throughout Rome. And so to not worship the emperor 
would cost you your life. And so regularly, the Christian church, um, the, the believers, the people of God, have been persecuted, and they've been suffering. And so they, like a woman in labor, are waiting for the birth of hope. They're waiting for the one who will come, who will relieve them of this pain and bring them victory. And so they're awaiting for the Messiah, which we will see when we get to verse 5, is the child that is born. So that's, who, that's how it starts off with. The people of God are in pain, waiting for the Messiah to come. And then we come to a bloodthirsty dragon. So who is he? Well, in our verse, it doesn't quite tell us, but what often happens in apocalyptic literature, a few verses earlier or later, we will be told what the image represents, or it'll point us back to the Old Testament or other parts of the New Testament. Here, if we go down to verse 9, we see that the great dragon is the ancient serpent. He is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So that's who the dragon is. And in the Old Testament, the dragon, or the word dragon, was usually given to nations that were persecuting the people of God, like Egypt. And so here, though, the great dragon is Satan persecuting uh, the people of God, waiting to devour this child. And we're told that it has seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems. Now, when we come to apocalyptic literature, again, I'm going to keep saying this, things represent other realities so numbers are often symbolic of something else the number seven represents perfection ten represents completeness and so if you have seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems what you're having a picture is is of a dragon of absolute authority of absolute power of absolute sovereignty and so this is a dragon who is very very strong in fact we read that his tail sweeps a third of the stars down to the earth which might point to his attack on the saints or the angels the point is the dragon is powerful the dragon is crouching over a woman she has no hope like as tough as women are and as tough as pregnant women are are women who have given birth will protect their child There's no woman who's protecting their child against a seven-headed dragon with ten horns ready to destroy her and the child. And so we we see that this woman will have no chance, no survival. And so we're kind of left with the question, but, but why? Why does he want to kill the child? Now to answer that, we go all the way back to the beginning. The beginning of the book into Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1 and 2, we read that God created man and woman. And he placed them in a garden, Adam and Eve, and they were to worship him through obedience to him. They were to multiply. They were to fill the earth. The garden was to spread. They were to have children who would also worship God. And they were told to do all these things. And the one uh, thing they were told not to do was to eat of a certain tree. The serpent slithers into the garden deceives the woman so that she and Adam would then eat of the tree, thus disobeying God, rebelling against God, sinning, and therefore becoming sinful. And then because of that, God comes into the garden where he curses them. And eventually they're going to be removed from the garden. And the garden represents the presence of God, the rule of God. It's his kingdom. And now they're being moved outside of the kingdom. They're being cursed. In fact, all of creation is cursed at this moment. 
And it looks as though humanity will forever be outside the presence of God. There is no hope. But then we read Genesis 3.15. We see there is hope. We see that this is not the end. We see that one day the people of God will, will through a certain person be able to come back into the very presence of God. And this is what we read. When God enters into the garden, he comes and he talks to the woman he talks to the serpent, and he talks to the man. And one thing he says to the woman, he says, or to the man, he says, or to the serpent, I'm sorry, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. So this is between the serpent and Eve. He shall bruise your head, the offspring of the woman will bruise his head, and you shall bruise his heel. Of course, if, you, if you're not Achilles, then it won't really hurt if your, your heel gets hurt. You might have to put a band-aid on it, but that's about all that will happen. But when you get your head crushed, you die. So that's the story here. So since the beginning of time, we are told that one day a, a woman will produce a child who will come and crush the head of the serpent. A serpent crusher is coming who will then bring humanity back into the very presence of God. That's the hope of the Bible. This is the gospel story, what we're reading from Genesis to Revelation. We've been looking ever since Genesis 3 for the serpent crusher. And Satan, ever since Genesis 3, has been looking to kill the one who will come to crush him. This is why Cain kills Abel. This is why when we proceed a little farther, if you remember, when Egypt goes in, or Israel goes into Egypt... All of a sudden, Egypt becomes hostile towards Israel, and Pharaoh tries to kill every single baby boy. Why? Because Satan is killing, is trying to kill the seed of the woman. And in fact, if you remember, after the birth of Jesus, what does Herod do? He tries to kill the every single male baby. Again, wipe out the line of the seed of the woman. What we see is that the attacks on God's people, they're not random, but they are the workings of the great dragon trying to kill the seed of the woman. So this is what we have. This is, this is the Old Testament. This is the, New, this is the Old Testament that leads us right into the New Testament that Satan has forever been trying to kill the one who will kill him. And so when we come into Revelation 12, this is the story that we're reading about. And it looks like Satan is finally going to win. After all, he's crouched over all seven of his heads, over a woman. She has no chance of survival. A child has no chance of survival. So then we look at what happens next. We go to the next event. The son who is born king. Who is this male child? Well, we're told that he is a child who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Well, this is Jesus. This is the child who was to be born king. In fact, let me read a passage from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a passage in the Old Testament that's looking forward to the greater King David, the one who will come and rule God's people, the one who will lead them into victory. And so this is, this is the king that we're waiting for. This is Psalm 2, 1 through 9. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot, them, plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. 
the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So what we have here is the nations are raging against the rule of God. They want to burst his bonds. They, they think they can break his sovereignty. They can break his rule that they don't have to live according to his plans. What they do is they represent the evil nations led by the devil. And God responds by saying, I laugh at them. And I appoint my son who will rule over them. And he will rule with a rod of iron. And so now, at this point, we're looking for the one who's going to come with the rod of iron. Revelation 12 says the woman who bears this child will rule with the rod of iron. If we go forward a little bit to Revelation 19, at the return of Jesus, when he rides in on his white horse defeating, finally, Satan and all those who follow him, when he will then throw them into the lake of fire. What does he have with him? The rod of iron, which he rules the nations with. And so this is a picture of Jesus Christ. The child is the serpent crusher. The hope has come. This, this is Christmas. Christmas is the hope of the serpent crusher arriving. When we celebrate Christmas, we're celebrating the fact that God has kept his promises ever since Genesis 3, and now the one who will overcome the enemy and redeem us, that we can have forgiveness of sins, and once again be in the presence of God, he has come, and that is the birth of Jesus Christ. But how does he escape this dragon? How does he escape the dragon? So that leads us to our next question. How does he sit with God on the heavenly throne? Like, how does he get to the throne? Here we have the dragon ready to kill him, and yet we're told, well, he makes his way up to the throne room of God. And so look back at verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That is perhaps the briefest summary of Jesus' Jesus's life in the entire Bible. That phrase right there, her child was caught up to God and to his throne. We've gone from birth to life to death and to resurrection all right here. It's kind of fast, isn't it? John doesn't have to expound on this. Other parts of Revelation, the rest of the Bible expounds on that. He doesn't need to go into that right here. So he just gives the fact that she was born, he was born, the, the dragon did not kill him, and he made his way up to the throne. Jesus sits on the throne of God. He was born at Christmas. He lived a perfect life. Then he was arrested. He was crucified. He was persecuted. And he died so that you and I, by faith in him, could be forgiven of our sins and adopted into his family. But at the cross, it does appear he's defeated, right? Like it does appear, it appears like the dragon wins at that moment. Here we have Jesus, it looks like he's grown, he's grown a large following, and then all of a sudden, he's killed. And what are we to think at that very moment? The dragon has won. The dragon has actually killed. He does have seven heads. 
He does have set ten horns. He is full of power. He is full of authority. He was too much for God. But then Jesus rises from the grave. And what we see is that through the cross, the death of Jesus, Satan was defeated. It's through Jesus' death he kills Satan. He was not defeated, but rather he defeated the enemy. So what we see then is that the dragon, who has seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems, which represent his perfect power and sovereignty, it's actually all a lie. He's an imposter. He's not all-powerful. He says he is, but he's not. He's a deceiver. He is a created being and therefore unable to overcome the plans of God. So when we come to Christmas, what we do is we celebrate that Jesus came to defeat Satan. That's what we do. At Christmas, we celebrate that Jesus rules supreme right now over all powers and all nations. At Christmas, we celebrate that God is faithful to keep all of his promises. And if he kept his promise back in Genesis 3, that he would one day send his son who would be killed and then rise again defeating the enemy, we can know that he will keep every other promise as well. So at Christmas, if we pull back the curtain and we look at the invisible, if we look at the spiritual, we see that there is a war that has taken place. But our king, our Jesus, has defeated the enemy, has risen supreme, and now rules with God on his throne. So the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, all of that testifies to the fact that nothing overcomes the plans of God. Nothing thwarts God's plans. Isn't that good news? That's, when we're celebrating Christmas, we're not just celebrating, this is fun. Let's open presents. We have a tree. We have garland. Like Those are good things, but they're all pointing to a celebration that gives us life, to the celebration of the fact that the enemy has been defeated because the serpent crusher came, and he didn't come and was defeated, but he came and killed the serpent. So now we come to the last part. The woman flees to the wilderness. So we ask the question again, who is she? Well, we already said she's the covenant people of God. But here, what we do is we see see she represents God's people after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So not only does she represent the Old Testament, but she also represents the New Testament people of God. She is the readers that God is writing to. They're the woman who has gone off into the wilderness. So he's writing to them and because we are in the new testament era we also are included in this so this is you and me this is the church now why does she flee to the wilderness well we're told first we see that it is a divinely appointed place prepared for her by god it says the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by god Secondly, we see that it is in the wilderness that God will nourish her. The very next line, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. And thirdly, it's for protection. Skip down to verses 14 and 16. We'll see how she is protected. 
But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. So what we see is times, times, and half a time is the very same as 1,260. And if we had more time, we would see that it also is the exact same as 42 months, which we read in chapter 11 and we read in chapter 13 or 14. Um, which we don't actually have time to go into all that today, so sorry you have questions, but we can't unpack everything. Um, but what we see is the woman goes off for, 12, for a times, times, and half a time. Verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, but the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. So what we have here is that the dragon is still trying to attack the woman. He wasn't able to kill the, the serpent crusher, but now he will attack the people of God. And in verse 17, we read that he makes war on the rest of her offspring, which surely also represents the church. And so what we have is that because the serpent was unable to crush or the serpent crusher, he's now making war on the people of God and trying to destroy them. But what we see is that God protects them. The earth opens up. Now, we're not to think that the earth just happened to open up, but God intervened that he would save and protect his people. And so to summarize, God has led his, the woman to a place where he will provide for her and protect her for a period of time, which is given 1,260 days. Now, before we go on, does that sound familiar? Just think about this. Is there another time in history where we have God's people escaping a dragon and fleeing, into, and fleeing into the wilderness where God has provided a place, provision, and protection for them. See, you guys are so good. So, again, apocalyptic literature, it's going to pull a lot from the Old Testament. In fact, Revelation, I think, has more Old Testament quotes than any other book. The Exodus. In fact, the Bible, and I think I already said this, the Bible refers to Egypt, I believe it's in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and in the Psalms, as a dragon. John is wanting us to see that just as Moses led the people of God out of Egypt, where they were enslaved to this world power, and brought them out to the wilderness where they would be free, so Jesus is performing a much greater exodus, one where he brings us out of slavery to Satan, where we were in bonds to sin, so that we'd be brought into the wilderness. This is the gospel. This is what we've just gone through, the gospel in apocalyptic literature. Because of Jesus coming to earth, we who believe in him are set free from our sins. We read that last week in 1 John chapter 3, if you remember. We who have been born of God are now children of God. The seed of God is in us so that we would not what? Sin. That we would no longer practice lawlessness, but now we would live in righteousness. And so right now, in between the first and second coming of Jesus, the church is pictured as in a wilderness-type setting waiting to enter the promised land, which is surely the new heavens and new earth, which we read about in Revelation 21 and 22. So how does God provide for us in this wilderness time? Number one, he gives us grace through his word. Through his word, we see who God is. We see how he has redeemed us, what he has done through Jesus. We see who we are, that we are now children of God, that we have now received the Spirit, that we are now sealed for the day of redemption. 
It's through God's word that we know how to live. God, uh, we're told in the Bible that God's word is like food, is the bread for our souls that we would nourish. And so I just want to encourage you. I think this is application for every single week, but it's, it's read the Bible. You don't eat once a week, so I hope this isn't the only time you open up God's word. This is the food that God's given to us to nourish us. Just as in the wilderness, God gave manna to nourish their bodies, so now he gives us the much greater manna, his word, in the Bible, so that we would be able to follow him and know him and live through him or live for him. We also, uh, the other way he provides for us is through the church, through you and through me. It's through a group of people who have been sealed by the Spirit, given the Spirit, are able to encourage one another, help one another. We've been gifted so that we would help each other live as God has called us to live. Another means of being nourished is through the Lord's Supper. And I don't mean because we actually have a little wafer and and juice. That's not the nourishing. But it's a means of receiving grace from God. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're obeying Him. And He's giving us grace that we would remember His coming. And we would live in a way worthy of His coming. That we would look forward to the fact that He's going to return. Another way that He nourishes us, He gives us His Spirit, that He would dwell within us, that He would strengthen us, that we would have an understanding of the Word, that we would know how to live each day. Another way He nourishes us is simply by the grace of responding to our prayers. He is the great Father who loves to answer us when we listen. Do you know that? Like just as I love to give things that my kids ask for, and I'm not a perfect father, so our Heavenly Father, who is perfect, loves to answer our prayers, loves to give us the things that we desire. And there are other ways also that God provides for us, but those are the key ways that we see. How does he protect us? In fact, what does it mean that he will protect us? Does it mean that bad things won't happen to us? Because I think Christians think that a lot, or at least that's how we function. You probably, if you think about it, that's probably maybe how you've functioned a lot or thought about things. But we know that's not the case. Because in this letter that John is writing to the churches, we have persecution, like the church in Smyrna in chapter 2. We are told, this is what he writes, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. And then he says, be faithful unto death. He says, some of you are going to still be killed. Be faithful unto the, fact, unto the point that you die. Pergamum, we see that there's a man named Antiochus who was martyred for his faith. And when the seals are being opened up, when we get to the fifth seal, we see that there is underneath the altar of God in heaven, the saints who are crying out, who have been martyred here during the tribulation, are crying out, when will you bring out justice? So surely protection does not mean no pain or no suffering. So it must mean a different kind of protection. What it means is that while the devil may attack, while he may try to kill us, we are forever God's people. We have been adopted into his family, and there is no way he can take us back. There is no way he can remove us from the presence of God. Satan may take your life, but he has no power over your eternity. Satan may threaten us with death, but that's where his threat stops. He can kill us, but he can't do any more. Now, I know that seems bad, but when we begin to think in the perspective of what the Bible tells us, like Paul saying, to live is Christ, die is gain, why is death gain? 
Because upon death we go to live with Jesus. So even when we die, it's not the end. It just ushers us to be with the one who has saved us. It ushers us to be with our king. This is one of the primary messages of Revelation, endurance of the saints. That's why he's written this book, so that you, so that I, so that the church in the first century would know that we can persevere our God reigns. In fact, if you look at Revelation 13.10, just a page over, he writes, If anyone is to be taken cap- to captive, if anyone is taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. So he's saying, some of you are going to die by the sword. Some of you are going to be persecuted. So it's going to happen. But our role is to persevere because we know that our God reigns. So see, the function of apocalyptic literature is not just to inform us of how our king is going to return or what events will look like, but it's to inform us how do we live right now. That's the purpose. If we only look at it in a future setting, we neglect the purpose that the book was actually written. That is a means of grace for you and for me in the first century church and every church who has read it to persevere because we know our king reigns our god does sit on high now it doesn't always look like that does it in fact um i was reading earlier today in aleppo just the tragedy that's happening there and i mean it's horrific my wife was saying she doesn't even want to look at the pictures because it's just too graphic and surely when we look at things like that we say there is so much evil in this world there's no way that our god can rule right now I mean, don't you wrestle with that? I mean, think first century. Christians are being persecuted because they won't worship the emperor, and they're wrestling with, how can God be king if this emperor is allowed to kill us because we don't worship him? So this has been the questions that the Christians have wrestled with all throughout history. But we know from the Bible, that the reason these things are happening is not because Satan is in control and because Satan has won. In fact, look at Revelation 12, 12. There we read, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you on earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. If we go up just a little bit before, we talk about how he's been defeated. The Satan has been defeated. He's been thrown down to earth. The reason he's persecuting, the reason he's causing so much evil is not because he's won, but because he knows he's defeated. His time is short. So he's doing all he can, no longer to win, but to cause damage. That is why he's operating now. Listen, knowing the way the story ends changes everything. It's the reason we can persevere. Let me give uh, an example of this. I read a a form of this example a while ago, and it stuck with me. Um, Imagine that a boyfriend is going to pick up his girlfriend at 6 o'clock at night. He's called her, and they've set this date, and they're going to go to a place where they're going to have a fine dinner. In fact, they had to make reservations because it is one of those really nice places that they're supposed to go. And so she gets all ready, and she's excited. And at 6 o'clock, he's not there. 6.05, he's not there. 6.10, he's not there. So now she's like, 
getting a little upset. He hasn't even called. He hasn't texted. What's he doing? She knows he was with his friends earlier, so did he forget? Did he get sidetracked? Where is he? 6.30 passes. 6.45 passes. 7 o'clock comes, and she is fuming. She takes off her dress, puts back on her sweats, and is like, forget it. I am done. I will not see him at all. And then at 7.15, he comes knocking on the door. And he just says, I'm sorry I'm late. Are you ready to go? And she is fuming. She, he should be begging for forgiveness at this moment. And so she says, no, I'm not going with you. But after a, a brief argument, he convinces her, no, just come. He actually heads in front of her, gets in the car, doesn't even open the car door for her, which just makes her fume all the more. So now she opens the car door, and she just is mad. And as they drive away, he's silent. And she's sitting there going, why is he silent? Why doesn't he speak? What is wrong with this person? And so she continues on, and, and of course they can no longer get to the dinner where they were supposed to eat. And so he says, can we just go to Taco Bell? <laughs> so he takes her to Taco Bell. She eats her burrito supreme. The whole time she's eating, she's like, I hate this. This is the worst date ever. We are so done. And then he takes her to a park, and she's going, park? It's dark out. It looks like it's going to rain. Why would I want to be at a park? But he finally convinces her to get out of the car, and he says, do you want to go over to the swings? Swings? It's going to rain. There's going to be lightning. I'm going to get struck. Do you want to kill me? I mean, she's just irrational at this moment. She's upset. She's mad. Now, let's just go back to the very beginning. What if at, let's say, 5 o'clock, one of her friends calls her and says, I saw your boyfriend, he just came out of the jewelry store, and he's going to propose to you tonight. And so he comes, but the reason he's late is he lost the ring in the car, and he couldn't find it anywhere. And so he's tearing through his car, trying to find the ring, and he was so upset that he was just full of sweat, and so he went and showered ahead, and when he came to her, her house, he knocks on the door, and he doesn't really know what to say because he's extremely nervous. But at that moment, she's been waiting since 6 o'clock, but she's no longer mad. She's excited. She's like, he's coming. He's going to propose to me tonight. And so at 6.15 comes, she's not mad. 6.30 comes, she's not mad, but she's in anticipation. What's happening? Is he okay? I hope he's okay. She's now full of compassion and love for him. Seven o'clock comes, and she's still dressed right by the door waiting. I know he's coming. I know he's coming for me because he loves me. 7.15 comes. He opens the door. She doesn't even wait for him to say anything. She just jumps out and says, let's go. She, in fact, runs in front of him, jumps in the car. He doesn't have to open the door. And when they're driving and he's silent, she's going, oh, he's so nervous. He doesn't know what to say. This is amazing. <laughs> And so she sits there just bubbling, and of course, the reservation is gone, and so he says, would you like to go to Taco Bell? And she goes, oh, it's my favorite fast food place. <laughs> I love Taco Bell. Of course we'll go there. She's eating her burrito supreme going, this is the best hot sauce I have ever had. <laughs> he makes their way to the park, and she goes, I love parks. In fact, this is the park we had our first date at, and he says, do you want to go by the swing? She says, Yes. It's over there by the swings. We had our first kiss. This is so romantic. And then as she sits down, he bends on his knee and proposes to her. Knowing the end of the story changes everything. And we know the end of the story. Our king rules. He reigns. So there are times as we go through history right now that it appears that he is not ruling and that he is not reigning. 
There are times when we look at Aleppo or we look at Christians being martyred and persecuted that we wonder, how can he actually be in control? But if you remember, that's actually what was asked about 2,000 years ago when Jesus was crucified. How is this good? I thought he was the Messiah. What we see, though, throughout history is that God in his power and sovereignty, is able to use even the most extreme forms of suffering and persecution as ways to reveal his extravagant grace, power, and love. And we don't always know how he's going to do that. We don't always know how things like Aleppo or martyred saints in other parts of the world is going to reveal his grace, is going to reveal his power. But we know the end of the story. He rules and he reigns supreme so at christmas we are reminded of a great war and we're reminded that satan is powerful but he is not powerful than the child who was born king at christmas we're reminded that earth is not our final home we're in the wilderness right now when jesus returns and brings about a new heavens and new earth that's the final home that we have. Because it's there we will experience God's presence for all of eternity. It's at Christmas we're reminded that Jesus rules supreme. And so when you gather as a family in your opening presence, take time to praise God that he sent his son to defeat the dragon. Because the greatest present you open this Christmas is not greater than the present that God has already given through his son Jesus. He has sent the one who killed the dragon so that we can forever live with God. Let's pray. Our Father, our Father, we come to you. And we thank you for a book like Revelation. Where it it is hard parts in it. We need to take time as we read it, but there are so many amazing great truths. Truths like you rule. Truths like we are sealed as your saints for the day of redemption. And Satan, while he may kill us, he has no power over us. And we are guaranteed to live forever in perfect joy in your presence. Lord, we know your kingdom has come and it is growing. And one day it will fill this entire earth perfectly in the new heavens and new earth. Lord, may we be bold to share our faith even when there's persecution, because we know that we are sharing it from a position of victory because your son has already defeated the serpent. May we know that you are all-powerful. May we, when we see the events on CNN or any other news network, may we not grow discouraged in our faith, but may it move us to pray. May it move us to trust in you all the more. May our eyes be opened to regularly understand that you are above all the earth on your throne and you can use what we consider the worst of tragedies even as a way of proclaiming your gospel, of showing your grace so that others would be saved also. Lord, may we be faithful as we persevere, as we wait for you to come. You are a good and righteous God, and you have been faithful to keep all of your promises, even the promise that one day from a woman will come the seed that will crush the head of the serpent. And Lord, we praise you for sending Jesus. At this Christmas season, may we not forget, may we never forget that your son has come, and nothing can thwart the plans of God. In your name, Jesus, amen.
you all can stay standing. This is short. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, what is, is the 1,260 days literal? What does the time period refer to? That's a hard question to answer <clears throat> in a truncated period of time without having preached through all of Revelation. Um, well, let me tell you this. Don't get on the internet. <laughs> like, just a lots of... There's good, but there's so much bad stuff, and you then have to weed through and find good things. Um, what we see is that 1,260 days begins after Jesus has been... Uh, he lived, died, lived, born, lived, died, resurrected. Then the woman goes into the wilderness for 1,260 days. So the people of God are representing, are being represented in this time frame. Going back to Revelation 11, we see that there's 42 months, and then there's 1,260 days, also mentioned in 11. In chapter 12, 1,260 days is mentioned, and then again in either 13 or 14, 42 months. So you have 42, 1260, 1260. 42. So John is doing this so that we can understand all of these time frames are the exact same representing the, the, uh, the same period of time. It is my understanding that it represents, because it began at the resurrection of Christ, that it represents the age of the church as we come uh, to the return of Jesus. Another way to understand that also is that um, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Greek king, came and persecuted the, uh, Israel peop- the Israelites Uh, or the Jews, I should say, same, but um, that time they were called the Jews, Uh, and they were being persecuted, and from 164 to 167, three and a half years, there was such intense persecution that the number 1260 would become very well known to all Jews of a time of great persecution. So when he adds that in here, we're to know going into the wilderness is not a field trip. It's not vacation. There's going to be persecution, and yet we know that our king will protect us. Um, And so that's the answer to 1260. So that may have raised a lot more questions, and uh, you can call, talk to me, or whatever later. But when we come to Revelation, there are some easy things to understand. There's some difficult. But go back to Revelation 1, and read that, he writes it so we would know. The purpose of the book is to reveal, not to conceal. You have to know that. If you read it the other way, then you're reading it as if it is some jigsaw, that you have to put it all together rightly, and that is the wrong way to go about it. It's not charts and time frames. Rather, it is a vision given to us that we would understand our king rules, and therefore we can endure uh, tribulation as we wait for him to return. Uh, So again, that might have even raised more flags and things. Um, But don't worry, in 2018, we can preach through that. So that's only 360-something days away or more. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you do rule. We thank you that uh, we can wrestle with your word, and we can wrestle with time frames. Um, But God, more than anything, we know that you rule. And I just pray that as we leave here today, that we would go forth in such conviction that right now you are on the throne. We are your children, your citizens. We have been saved by you, and therefore we are under your authority. Help us to know that. Help that identity of who we are in you affect everything that we do. May that Cast away all fear. May we be bold in our faith. And as persecution very well 
will increase in time, even here on earth, in the United States and everywhere. May we be bold. And may we right now, in every moment we have, take time to be nourished by your word. Thank you for your word that we could know it, that we can be nourished, and that we can grow strong in you. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen.